right, team. Welcome to the Man Talk Show. I am still Connor Beaton, and today I have a special episode for you. This is something that my podcast producer, I have to give him mad props, a big shout out, Mr. Aaron Durant, for putting this idea together. Uh, never even dawned on me, but this is a compilation episode of some of our favorite guests and favorite moments from the podcast over the last year. You know, we have some big episodes coming up for you. We have Wim Hof on the horizon. Uh, that should be out in the next month or two. Really, really great conversation. But as we step into some of these, you know, great interviews and, and solid conversations that I'm really excited to bring you, I wanted to recap some of the last year because sometimes we have these conversations. You know, I find myself having these conversations with some of the guests on the show and walking away and thinking, holy crap. The amount of wisdom, the amount of insight, the amount of understanding and clarity and the, the potency of the ideas that these people are sharing is so deeply profound that sometimes we can move past them too quickly. And so uh, my podcast producer, Aaron, put together this compilation episode with our top ranked guests. So these are some of the most downloaded podcasts of the last year, some of our personal favorite guests and some of the... Uh, most potent ideas shared by those guests over the last year. So in this episode, you are going to hear Robert Greene, uh, who wrote The 48 Laws of Power and a number of other books. You're going to hear Mr. Stephen Jenkinson, who has been on the show a few times, who I absolutely love. Jason Wilson, close friend of mine, who has done some incredible work. Dr. Anna Lemke, who is one of the leading researchers in the world on addiction. And Dr. Martin Shaw. And in this episode, you're going to hear themes about power, about trauma, about failure, about addiction, and really about how do you orient yourself and your life towards a deep embodied sense of fulfillment? How do you orient yourself and your life, your decision-making matrix, uh, the people that you surround yourself with, the values that you live? How do you direct all of those aspects of your life towards a deep, meaningful sense of fulfillment in all areas of your life? And so this is a really, really great podcast. These are some of our favorite moments. I really hope that you enjoy them. And if you do, as per always, I would really appreciate if you shared it. Um, I have been really honored by everyone who has been sharing the podcast lately and leaving a rating and review. We are now top 50 in Canada. Uh, I think we're top 40 actually in Canada and top 70 or 75 in the United States and then top 70 in uh, uh, the UK and Australia as well. And so huge, huge, huge thank you to everyone that tunes in every week and shares these episodes. I appreciate all of you. Make sure that you tag me when you share it on Instagram. I'd love to to reshare it and uh, just give you a little bit of a, a thank you for that. So, all right, without any further delay, enjoy this compilation episode. Uh, and until next week, we'll talk to you soon. To just dovetail off of that conversation around power to maybe define how the time that we're in, the, the crisis that we're in is being determined by power and how power is being used because you've openly talked about the crisis generation. We've seen this kind of frittering away where power centers are getting more and more narrow and smaller into these tiny little niches where people, obviously women in the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, more and more people feel that sense of helplessness that they might have accepted 50 years ago, 100 years ago, but nobody will accept it anymore. 
there's a kind of an anger and a violence to it. I don't say anything negative about that because sometimes violence is necessary. There's this kind of energy that you can feel in the air where more and more people who felt excluded don't want to feel excluded anymore. And what goes along with that kind of evolution of power, because you can trace from back in primitive times where the pharaoh commanded an entire country to now where everybody on the internet is like a pharaoh with their Instagram account where they can, you know, reach millions of people and have this weird kind of power. So that's the evolution of it. But what it means is that people don't have faith anymore in large power centers, right? They don't have faith in the governance of our country, even in democracy, in political parties, in big business, in in large corporations, etc. And so this creates a lot of turmoil, right? And we're going through a period like that. Now, when we talk about the crisis generation, which I wrote about in The Laws of Human Nature, these things tend to follow a pattern in history. So it's not like this has never happened before. I mean, the French Revolution was probably the most radical moment in history of that kind of turnaround where people beheaded the king, got rid of a royalty, and they wanted power for the for the French people. So it happens in these patterns, in these waves, and we can see it throughout history. And so the pattern usually follows different generations. And the generation that we're going through now, particularly Generation Z, I would say, is one that what is rising up is a kind of a revolutionary generation. Now, I don't mean revolution necessarily in carrying guns out on the street and, you know, mass protests, etc. although that can happen. But it comes on the heels of a crisis generation. And the crisis generation would be more like millennials, where you grow up in a world, and I understand, I'm not, obviously, I'm not a millennial, but you grew up in, I'm assuming you are, I don't know, I don't know, Z millennial. I'm like a, I'm like a, I'm like a cusping, I mean, my, you know, the, the, like the helicopter landing pad at the back would say otherwise, but it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> I'm like, I'm 37, so I'm right on the cusp there. Okay. Well, you're a millennial. That's definitely millennial. Um, well, you grew up in a period where obviously the boomer generation kind of dominated the scene. And they dominated not just in politics, but in culture and in business. And that generation came up with a particular model, a particular mindset. Much of it we can see very strongly in the 1960s. And you grew up in a world that's completely different from what I grew up in. And so this dominating generation that's controlling how things operate in this country has rules and conventions that have nothing to do with your own experience and the experience of people in your generation. And you feel it feels empty and it feels kind of disconnected and you can get a bit angry about it. There's some kind of latent hostility towards the older generation. Ironically enough, the hostility that the boomers themselves felt at that time. And so you felt like it was a crisis. This world that you're growing up in doesn't have real meaning to you. It doesn't fit your circumstances. And so you're kind of lost. You don't know what you want. You don't know where to go, but you know it doesn't fit. And so then usually what happens is a generation emerges that can't stand it anymore and starts creating new trends, new ways of doing things. And it's going to dovetail with the pandemic, which is kind of one of those moments in capitalism they call it creative destruction, where entire models, ways of doing things have been destroyed, like a tsunami has passed through. And so 
there's all of this empty space for creating new ways of thinking, new conventions, new way of being social, new ways of organizing things, new forms of entertainment. It's going to be very exciting, incredible amounts of opportunity. You know, there's a Chinese expression. I don't remember it exactly. It says, where there's crisis, there is opportunity. And so this moment where things feel empty and there's like, we don't know where we're going. A new generation is going to rise up with all the energy that young people have because it's young people that drive trends. They're the ones that are interested in all the different things that matter to culture. They're going to rise up and they're going to create something new. And so it could be, you never know in history, I'm not a prophet, but it could be a very exciting time that we're heading into. What came forward with the words of Rilke, and I don't remember exactly how it goes, but he's sort of talking about victory not being uh, important to a man who seeks defeat over and over again as a means of carving ourselves. And that's almost what I hear you saying. Again, I, I don't have the quote uh, word for word, but I, and I can help you though. Please. Yeah. We can both paraphrase this uh, uh, badly. My paraphrase would go something like this. Human beings are not in the world to be victorious, but to be defeated by greater and greater things. That's the one I think you're referring to. Yeah. And so do, do you feel like part of the time that we find ourselves in is that we're sort of drenched in a culture that is obsessed with victory and, and is trying to negate this defeat, leading us closer and closer to some sort of penultimate defeat? Well, you know, I'll leave the language of defeat and victory to Rilke in this case, but I'd, I'd answer your question this way. I think the culture that I'm a product of has absolutely no taste or tolerance or capacity for limit. Mm. Okay. It's a subtler thing than defeat or victory, isn't it? Limit. And by, and by limit, I also mean frailty and endings and undoings. That whole range of life uh, that doesn't seem to be upside. Right? Think, for example, about how you learned how to be grateful, principally as a kid. Where did your... Where did your sense of gratitude come from? Answer is, every time something good came to you, right? That's how, probably how you were trained. I mean, if things went sideways, if you fell off your bike, nobody came to you and said, well, it's an excellent learning opportunity. And uh, you could be grateful for it, even though you didn't ask for it. I'm, I'm guessing that never happened, right? So our sense of gratitude is connected to upside. So what does that tell you about the rest of life when it comes to you? What becomes of your capacity for gratitude, including the gratitude for simply being alive? I shouldn't have said simply. I, I, I come back to that frequently because I saw so many people die. So this is, a, this is not a conjectural aspect of life for me. Seeing people die is right here. It sits right here all the time. And I don't know that I've, in the last little while, had anybody come up to me and said, I just wanted to tell somebody that even though most of it's not going very well, and we're, we seem to be in the shit in a big way, the fact that I've lived long enough to see all this will do. At least it'll do today. Never happened. You know, when I, when I used to have an office, the bad old days in a secretary and the whole thing, nobody ever came to my office because everything was working out. Never. Nobody ever took the opportunity 
uh, of um, good fortune to wonder about their lives. So what does it take? And being stopped is more emphatic in the life of a Westerner than stopping. I used to say when we're doing the Grief and Mystery shows, uh, I used to say, uh, do a riff about uh, a road sign uh, that I'd seen outside Chicago one time on the highway. And uh, I realized only then, as many times I'd seen it, that it was an oracle masquerading as a road sign. It said in black letters against a red background, be prepared to stop. I, I was enormously compelled for some reason when I saw it that time. And the subsequent years have turned that into an oracle indeed, a much ignored oracular presence among us, no? So it's, it's frailty that gives you a taste for being human. I'll go further and suggest the real possibility is that your humanity only really appears when it's midwived by frailty. And could you say two more sentences about that and, and then we'll go to the next question? Sure. Something like this. I, I heard the guy, he wrote a, a huge bestseller called, I think, The Brief History of Humanity or something close to that. And uh, then he came out with a sequel, which was about the near future. I heard him on an interview and this is what came out. The interviewer said, what do you see coming? He said, well, they're working on a serum and uh, in due course, probably too late for you, he said to him, but a uh, subsequent generation or two at the most will have recourse to a serum whereby having taken it, you won't have to die. Now listen to the prejudice. You won't have to die. I could say exactly the same thing, sort of. I could say, if you take the serum, you won't be able to die. And it puts the emphasis in the proper spot. So the interviewer said to him, wow, so you think that's a reality? Absolutely, he said. He said, well, what would that mean for us? And the, the author said, well, we'd have to find a new word to describe those people who took the serum because they wouldn't be human anymore as we understand the term. And the interviewer said, what would you suggest? And the author said, divine. Scary, no? Scary. Because he was riffing very clearly on our association between eternal, bottomless, omnipotent, omniscient, and the rest, and divine on the one side. That's where divinity gets its chops from. Where does humanity get its chops from? The absence of all of those things in our lives, except as rumors and allegations and carrots on the end of sticks. Our humanity comes from the fact that we end. And that's what we should be cultivating. Grace under pressure, particularly unto our endings. And a plague is a wonderful opportunity to practice this understanding. Yeah, the, I think who you're referring to is Yuval Harare. And the, the second book is aptly named Homo Deus, Human Gods. There you go. What what do you feel is the obsession that we have with trying to eliminate death? Like why, is, is, what is this? This has always been curious to me. Like it's it's just sort of this phenomena that I would I would love to you to speak to. And then I have some more um, sort of tactical questions. Tactical. Okay. <laughs> great. We're going to get to your, uh, your five, you know, top five. I can already wait. Um, well, I, I'm not persuaded 
by uh, the terms of reference of your question, and here's why. I, for one, am not infatuated with the idea of eliminating death. And I think I know people who aren't. I would suggest to you subtly and humbly that this preoccupation might be more generational, which is to say that there is something about the median generation. I'm going to arbitrarily say something like between 30 and 45 years old right now. There's something about that generation that's been been taunted by the excesses of my generation, taunted enough to abandon my generation more or less entirely, particularly in terms of emulating anything that we did or tried or or failed at or the, or the rest. And to the extent that my generation is coming to its dying time now, more or less consciously, which is, I mean, they're not doing it very well, but it is in the cards. And the younger generation, perhaps yours, is looking upon the whole scene and is, is both sickened and disgusted, I would say, by the notion of giving in to something that it itself should be giving in. That is terminality and mortality. And if endings can be undone, why wouldn't you undo them? Is the mantra much more of your generation than of mine? See, I'm not sure. Well, I'm quite sure that I never grew up with a sense that anything was possible, that there was a sufficient kind of micro technology available at the household level, such as we now see, that could make your life smarter, you know, and more everything than it was. That was inconceivable when I was a kid. Nobody even thought of it. A microwave was a bizarre operation at the time. So something fundamental has happened between uh, my birth and yours, between me coming to my age and you coming to yours. And I think we ignore this at our peril and we try to lump all of Westernhood into a single mindset. You see, I think that's part of being a Westerner is to imagine there's a singularity to being a Westerner, right? But certainly, generationally speaking, your generation is much less fond of knuckling under and submitting to life than mine is. We are often obsessed with perfection, with succeeding, and with not failing, you know, with not being defeated. But I think when I look at my life, it's like, man, <laughs> life is life has choked me out more times than I can count. And I've tapped, I've tapped so many fucking times. But that's why I am where I am today. You know, it's because I have I have learned from those defeats. You know, I've allowed those defeats. I've I've entered into them time and time again and let them mold me and shape me. And so um, I, I'm just, I just want to pause there and get your thoughts on, on anything that I said, because I feel like you probably have some more wisdom. The, the system that we teach our boys is to cast or to keep some things we need to keep. That's why I don't buy into the motivational teachings. You know, it's like, dude, I can't be happy all the time. Every emotion is fleeting. OK, every emotion is fleeting. So. What if I was offensive to my wife and it makes me feel sad because I'm convicted? Do I just throw that away? Oh, that's, that's that negative energy. I, I don't have time for that. I got to stay happy. No, I need to keep that, feel that conviction so that I can apologize to, be, to her for being impatient or rude. Once I release everything after even keeping and then releasing that after I reconcile, now I can reset, bro. 
and then I can rest. And unfortunately, we don't even give, you talked about grace. We need to give ourselves grace. We're so hard on ourselves. Like our fathers had the master plan. First of all, children don't come with manuals. So when you deal with uh, African-Americans, it was so, when I was writing uh, Battle Cry, I had a, a, a great brother, man, who just gave me a different perspective. So, and he's a white, white dude, very cool. He was like, why do you think black men struggle with releasing or being emotional? He says, I want you to talk about that. You, this is what's missing. And I, I thought on it, I did some research. During slavery, Connor, could you imagine you, you being black and your children are sold to the highest bidder like puppies? And then you look back, your wife is traumatized and your sons and daughters traumatized. You don't have time to entertain the grief, the extreme grief of seeing your baby sold like a puppy. Because why? You got to still provide and protect for your family. Imagine that being suppressed. Intergenerational trauma is proven. It's in your DNA and it's passed on. My grandfather was lynched. I saw with my own eyes what happened to my mother and her siblings' minds. Four out of six of them suffered with dementia. One of them would struggle with alcoholism, okay? They couldn't let go of the pain because after he was lynched by police in Fort Pierce, Florida, the police terrorized my mother's family so much that um, my uncle had a nervous breakdown. And then they were ostracized from the community because black people in the community were scared to be around them. It's, it's in the blood. And so now you really have to be intentional about releasing it. And then for my white brothers or my brothers of another mother, I don't care what your ethnicity is. If you look down the lineage, who were your father's role models? Humphrey Bogart, John Wayne. We can go down the line. Hyper-masculine males. Over-toughness. And, and I get it. I, used, I mean, it's, don't get me wrong. The world needs us to be masculine. The problem is they also need us to be comprehensive. This world needs to experience what a love feels like from a warrior, from a man. You know, more than just me protecting and providing, I'm bigger than that. Uh, and we saw the truth in this when Kobe Bryant died with his beloved daughter. I think it was nine other people in the helicopter crash. We'll start servicing over the Internet, Connor. Images of him being what? A pro protector? No. A provider? No. A nurturer. You saw him hugging Gianna, kissing her. Then what happened worldwide, bro? Men started posting pictures of themselves with the hashtag girl dad, with them being nurturers with their daughters. It took someone to show that so that these men could change and transform. Even Yeshua or Jesus even said, the people will not believe until they see signs and wonders. How can a man expect to be a comprehensive one if he don't see a comprehensive man? What does this look like? And so I'm, I'm thankful that I went through the years of getting tapped out. Like you said, the, the emotional struggle, the, me wanting to give up on life. I still wage these battles every day, Connor. But because I'm broken in such a way by the Most High, men could see my success and my struggles and, and gain hope because I don't just show you my highlight reels. Neither do you. That's why I respect you. 
you don't need to just see my highlight reels. You need to see everything. When you're studying, you're playing football or any sport, and, and you're, you're watching film, you don't just watch their best moments. You watch their bad moments. And that allows you to become better when you play them. That's how we should be in life, bro. But because we're taught that we only can be, you know, that's all we, we try to be. And it's all we look at. And it's, and it's, 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 when I say game over for that, you know, that's what I'm thankful for brothers like yourself, you know, who are sharing this message. It's, it's just time out, man. And the world is in dire need of comprehensive men. It would change our, our lives first. I was about to say our families, because we typically put them before us. We put the work before us. Everyone else matters but us. It would change our lives. Then it would change our marriages. Then it would change our families. Then it would restore our communities. Then it would change the world. And that's why me and we stay under such great attack. But sadly, bro, we've given in. And understandably so, because I know what it feels like to sit in a mental prison and I can walk out any day, but choose not to. And so I, I'm just, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, those who are even watching now, that look, man, you know, you, it literally just takes, takes for you to do this, to get up, get off that bed in your cell. You don't have to rush to the door, but start taking a step. And you may need to stay in that one step because you've been through so much. Stop being hard on yourself. You've been through a lot. You've seen a lot. You've heard a lot. Maybe just stay in that one step for a moment and just stay right there. Then when you're ready, take the next one. Then take another one. And eventually, you'll not only be out the cell, but you'll be out, out the prison. And that's, that's what I hope men will, you know, gain from my life and I'm able to empower men to do. And we have a lot of men that come into our space that are, that are struggling with exactly that, with, with porn addictions of various forms. And I'm curious to get your take on how you define uh, addiction. And is there a, a difference necessarily between something like substance abuse or social media or, you know, porn or sex addiction uh, when it comes to what's happening neurologically or within the body? Yeah. So there are lots of different definitions of addiction, but they all come down to basically the same thing, which is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. Uh, a shorthand way to remember the DSM criteria for that is the three C's, control, compulsion, and consequences. Hmm. Another definition of addiction that that I like, though, that's a little unorthodox, but is relevant for the book is addiction is the things we do that we lie about. Mm. <laughs> uh huh. Okay. Can you say more about that? I feel like that, like I can almost like hear my audience being like, oof. <laughs> it's one of those oof moments. Uh huh. Yeah. The things yeah. we lie about. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I mean, you know, uh, one of the cardinal features of addiction is this what we call the double life where we're living our regular lives, but then on the side, we have this other life that is not known to the important people in our lives. And on some level, even hidden from ourselves through this process, we call denial, which um, one of my patients said is an acronym that stands for don't even know I am lying. Hmm. And I love that because it really does represent the ways in which we can have this divided brain where we're living out certain behaviors, but not even acknowledging to ourselves that they're happening. They're in this kind of 
um, dream, like waking dreamlike place in our minds. And is there like, is there some sort of advantage to that kind of behavior? Is there, is there like an evolutionary advantage to that? Is there a, a biochemical um, benefit to that? Because it seems like that's such a prevalent thing that has emerged within our species. Our brains have evolved over millions of years to approach pleasurable stimuli and avoid painful ones. And it's what's kept us alive in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. So it makes a lot of sense that we would be wired this way. The problem is that we've now created a world of overwhelming abundance. So what was once an adaptive mechanism has become our Achilles heel. I would say also that, in my opinion, people with severe addiction are people who, in another time and place, would have been the most adapted among us because they would have been the ones willing to search longer and further to find that oasis in the desert. But mm. now those individuals may be the most vulnerable in our modern society because of their predilection for addiction to these intoxicating stimuli. Yeah, interesting. And so, so in many ways, the the mechanism has always been there. However, the environment that we found ourselves in has altered uh, and changed to such a degree where uh, it's maybe not as useful as it used to be. That's right. right. Uh, Dopamine Nation is essentially the story of how our primitive uh, brains are not made for our modern environment. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. And yeah, and you, you talk a lot about this uh, dichotomy between the pursuit of pleasure and the active avoidance of, of pain and the relationship between the two. Can you just say a little bit more, uh, and maybe we can start to go into this, but can you say a little bit of, of what's actually happening in the brain when we're pursuing pleasure and trying to avoid pain? Because those are two sort of different systems that are at play, if, if my understanding is correct. Yeah. So one of the most interesting discoveries in the field of neuroscience in the last 75 years is that pleasure and pain are co-located. And by that, I mean that they are processed in the same parts of the brain and they work like opposite sides of a balance. So when we do something pleasurable, our balance tips slightly to the side of pleasure. We get a little release of dopamine, our reward neurotransmitter in the brain, um, and we feel good. But one of the overarching rules governing that balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't want to be tipped to pleasure or pain for very long. Mm. So no sooner has that happened than our brains will downregulate our own dopamine transmission and our own dopamine production in order to level the balance again. But the brain intentionally overshoots that in order to restore a level balance or what's called homeostasis. And I imagine that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the thing is, the gremlins like it on the balance, so they stay until it's tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain, and that's the come down or the after effect or the hangover. Now, if we wait long enough, the gremlins hop off, that feeling passes, and a level balance or homeostasis is restored. But if we repeat that behavior again and again, we eventually end up with so many gremlins on the pain side of the balance that they fill this whole room. We change our set point and we essentially end up with a balance chronically tilted to the side of pain. That means we have to continue to use our drug just to feel normal. And when we're not using it, we're in a state of withdrawal, craving, irritability, depression, anxiety, and nothing else is enjoyable. 
Yeah, interesting. And so I'm curious to get your take on, there's many different um, perspectives on how addictions are formed. And what I hear you saying is that in some ways, it it is really spurred out of this pursuit of more pleasure where we can become hooked or, or have an addictive behavior form or the avoidance of, of some form of pain that manifests that can create the addiction. And I think when people think of addiction, they, you know, they see or, or think of the normal sort of causes, right? That somebody experienced some form of traumatic or adverse event and it, it created something that people needed to subside the pain from or avoid or escape or, or numb or deal with. And that's how the addiction manifested. I'm curious from your perspective, is there always a causality? Because I think I've seen addicts that whether it's porn or sex or or drugs or, you know, even things like social media where they don't think that there is any form of cause, that there's nothing that sort of transpired before that, that, that sort of can be labeled as the reason why they're an addict. Yeah. So this is a really important question because, um, it is true that trauma or co-occurring mental illness or other experiences can drive us toward using substances and so in some ways be responsible for the creation of our addiction. But it's also true that we can have the perfect life and still get addicted, that there can in fact be nothing behind the addiction except for the addiction itself. And I would also emphasize that sometimes spending too much time trying to figure out why we're addicted is not a worthwhile endeavor. Because even when we discover what that underlying reason may be, once we become addicted, it's a very physiologic, biological phenomenon. And what we need to do is engage in behaviors to get well from that addiction. So although I certainly acknowledge the role of trauma, for example, in the possible etiology of addiction in some cases, I think that the role of trauma can be overstated um, and that on some level people need to realize that um, addiction can just be caused by being exposed and having access to highly addictive stimuli. And I emphasize again and again that in our modern world, it is the increased access, the almost ubiquitous access to these drugified experiences um, and substances that makes us all vulnerable to addiction. Yeah, it's, I remember um, a couple of years ago speaking at a, an all-boys school. It was like this uh, Catholic college prep military school, all-boys school. It was like 650 boys. And I had I was doing some research leading up into this of, of talking to the boys because they wanted me to come in and talk about masculinity and uh, and and they wanted me to address porn. And I was like, wow, that's you know really offloading <laughs> some responsibility onto me, yeah, right? Wow. And. And, but anyway, in, in my, in my research, I found that a lot of young boys, a lot of young men are, are coming into finding pornographic materials between the age of eight and 11 now. And I thought to myself, what a, what a challenging thing to find at that age, you know, what, especially if you've never had anyone, uh, talk to you about sex, talk to you about what's happening in the body, none of those things. And so in the school, I just did an exercise. I had a, I had a couple slides and and at one point this slide you know went this the screen that was up there it said porn on the background 
and all you know all the boys 650 boys and they are still you know kind of making noise and wrestling around and i said <laughs> okay the teachers are all going to turn their back and so all the teachers were in the rafters and i said all the teachers turn your back and the parents turn your backs <laughs> and so they all turn their they all turn their backs and turn around and i said all right all right guys raise your hands if you've watched porn and these guys were from, you know, these boys were from uh, grade four all the way up to grade 12. I would say probably about 95% of those boys yeah. put their hands up. And yeah. I was shocked. Mm-hmm. I was really shocked, you know. Uh, so later on that night, I had a conversation with the parents of all, not all the boys, but whoever wanted to show up. And we talked about engaging that conversation. So, um, so I, you know, I think, I think what you're saying is right, is that we have access to things that we've never had to experience before, you know, right. things like social media that are literally designed to try and capture our attention. Yeah. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I can't find, I can't seem to help myself, but ask like, <laughs> how do we begin to regulate our systems, you know, our, our, our brains, our nervous systems in a world that is designed to hook us in, in some ways. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think that we need to talk about strategies specifically, but if you want to just speak to that briefly before we go back into what we were talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the very premise of dopamine nation that, that acknowledging that we are living in this drugified world with 24 seven access to these highly reinforcing substances and behaviors that children from a very young age have access to drugs that would have been unimaginable even a generation ago, and that that we have to take on this very real conversation about what this means about our development, our behavior, our values. You know, how are we going to navigate uh, this really unprecedented time in human history? I would be remiss if I didn't go back to the idea and the notion of the blessing, and. Yes. Uh, I would like to, maybe afterwards, I'd like to sort of get more in, into myth, although I feel like we're inadvertently speaking quite a bit about it. So I'd like to go back to the the notion of the blessing and, and for you to just maybe refine some of that for the listener and what the blessing might mean, look like, how it transpires with, within our life and, and the sort of importance of it. Because I think it's be, that word has sort of been hijacked within mainstream social media to mean many, many, many different things. And oftentimes those things are lacking in, in a real type of significance and depth. And the way that you just, just briefly described it, I could feel uh, a heft to it that I hadn't in a long time. And so I'm hoping that you can return to that for me. For sure. Um, so let's think, let's think about the difference between an affirmation and a blessing. One of my many lives is marking essays. And it's very rare that I can bless a student as I'm grading them. I sometimes bless them with a very low grade. <laughs> they don't thank me for. Um, but an affirmation says, yes, doing well, think about this, da 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 da. It's, it's, it's okay. But a blessing has a kind of spiritual acuity in it. Acuity, specificity. Um, I've just come out now from telling the epic story of Parsifal for three days. I've just finished it uh, with a group of 50 of my students. And very early in the morning, I always ask them to write poems. And my school is 18 years now, 18 years old. 
And in these early, early morning poems, which are almost half dreams, I suddenly heard a woman, I just suddenly heard proper poetry coming from a woman with no background at all in this. As you can imagine, in my world, I meet want-to-be poets every day. Hmm. And suddenly I'm hearing clearly from a woman who has the capacity to take her elevator down into what we call the chthonic, the deep underbelly, and come up with what the alchemists call prima materia, the -hmm. stuff that you can turn into gold. Now, that was a moment. If I didn't know what blessing was, I would have kind of carried the day on and maybe had a quiet word with her later. But because I know that blessing has a kairos attached to it, 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 if you don't do it at the time, the moment can pass and it loses its efficacy. So I luckily did what I should have done, which was stopped everything, focused in on this young woman, not young woman, actually, women of my own age, and just say something extraordinary is happening right now and nothing more is going to proceed until I tell you what I am witnessing from you. And you can probably imagine the effect that it had. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of the things also I have to say about that is doing it publicly. I remember once being, uh, I was with another teacher, it was John Lee, and John Lee was talking about the amount of men that wait as their wife leaves the room. They say, love that woman. It's like, buddy, we could rewind this three minutes and you could have actually said that while she was here. So something about blessing for me is the Kairos moment the clarity of it, the cleanness of it, that you're not doing it for any anything other than to just transmit something good. And you're in and then you're out again. And that's mm-hmm. it. But it is not the same as just general patting on the back and saying, keep going, all will be well, which is useful at times. This is a, a, a different directive. And l- I didn't experience it in my own life really till I would have been about 35 uh, so I knew the difference because afterwards I was full. That's the other side of the giving of the blessing. You will notice that your carnivorous, starving self that wants endlessly to live on the helium of praise is almost, it's not quite ashamed, but it's just like, Vroom. oh, I'm good. I, I'm good. Mm. I just tasted the real meat. I just drank the real wine and actually I don't need as much of it as I thought I did. Hmm. There's a guy, uh, there was a teacher from the South a few years ago, a very brilliant man, Robert Moore. And Robert Moore used to say, if you have a young, a notably younger friend and in the last two weeks you haven't praised them, you're hurting them. Hmm. You're hurting them if they admire you. Yeah, interesting. And again, he's saying there's somewhere, there's just something to notice. Just pay attention to some quiet, tacit act of goodness they're involved with and flag it up. Hmm. And you're saying that that's important to, to continue to reaffirm in that direction or that it's just something to take note of? I think it's something to take note of, to be aware, to to be aware that... 
we the, the trouble is we are we are over inebriated in 2022 with what they call in religious circles the passions. So we are hugely erotically overstimulated. We are neurotic to the point of madness that we aren't phenomenally well liked, you know, and and we live in this this extraordinary technological system that's always applying that pressure on us. You know, God knows as the as the father of a teenager, you know, the the likes and all we all we know this already. Uh so I'm not saying that you endlessly just tell someone that they're great. But you, you have to, and I, I think, I suppose I'm, I'm talking to a slightly older audience at this moment. I'm talking to people probably in their thirties and onwards. Just be aware you have a little heft that you might not know about yourself. And if there's younger ones looking at you, it's not, as I said, it's not flat affirmations, but for example, you really do need to learn some fairy tales. You really do need to have some stories to pass on. And you need to be able to talk about to talk about your life without too much varnish on it. And and ideally not on Zoom. You know, mm. by a fire in a forest, walking by a river. Something that means that nature interacts with the conversation. So for example, Connor, when I'm learning a story, I very rarely take it to human beings until I've auditioned it in front of crows and herons and cormorants and curly river bends up on the moors. And I've put it through the roughage and the protein of nature. There's been, there's been some feedback across, mm. across realms before it comes into the human dimension. Wonderful. Well, and I, I feel like there's a, maybe hopefully down the road, a, a separate conversation about the stories of King Arthur, because I feel like there's a very fruitful, especially for my audience, a very fruitful conversation over, over the course of, of an interview to go into some of those. I would like to give more time and space to that. But yeah. I, I would like to sort of shift gears into, you know, I've, I've talked to a number of people about myth. It's something that I've been very in, intrigued by. And, you know, over the years, I've, I have a very Jungian framework. And I think what's interesting about Jung is that he sort of went into the psyche and, and, and went so deep into it that he came out the side of, of myth and God on the other side, which is quite, quite fascinating into itself. But you talk in your work quite a bit about where myth can lead us in our current times. And I would just like to maybe start there in terms of where do you get a sense, and, and maybe why is that important and relevant? Maybe we'll just start there. Like, how does myth inform us about our current times, and and maybe what can it say to us about the times that we're in right now? Well, good question. I think most of us would agree that there is <laughs> there's we're in an era of jeopardy, and we're in an era of peril, and mm. jeopardy and peril are the very life stuff of myth. No story begins the day that not much happened. The stories <laughs> begin when it all, it, it, a lot happened. A lot right. happened. Your version of the Shire or your version of everything that is familiar and, and like the Lotus Eaters in, in uh, the Odyssey, anything, that's, anything that sedates you is roughly taken away and a journey begins and you have to set out and you are going to be pulverized, challenged, you might lose loved ones, you may die yourself, but one way or another, you are going to say yes to the encounter. 
You're going to say yes to the encounter. You are going to trade, as I often say, comfort for shelter. We are a comfort anesthetized culture, but what we need is spiritual shelter. Hmm. We, we, are, we are worshipful people. Hasn't gone away. And I am fully conversant with the destructive elements of almost all religions. However, we're always going to worship something. And so when, when a culture loses its sense of divine ground, which is a, a phrase this chap Moriarty used to use, John Moriarty, the Irishman, we're still going to serve in some kind of temple. So my question would be, in what temple do you serve? Where are you showing up to? Wherever you're putting the most of your energy, that's the place that you're serving in. We need myth especially because myth most of the time doesn't actually require you to, it doesn't put this huge emphasis on factual belief in a way that many religions do, but it still allows the oxygen of your imagination to receive mythic images. We are, we are, although metaphor gets overused, we are symbolic people. We are, we go through difficult things and we naturally try and interpret. And myths have been really our most phenomenal form of spiritual interpretation for many, many years. Now I'd say more than that, what we are forgetting, and I'm critical to some degree of the the overly breathless therapeutic approach to myth is when you get myth outside of the West, when you get myth into what we would think of as Aboriginal or Indigenous cultures, you feel in these stories that the earth itself is thinking its way through the stories. Hmm. It's no longer a man or a woman by the fire worried about the enormity of consciousness and crafting a little tale to make them feel good, there's a return message within these stories. And there's times where you feel there is an animal power announcing itself or a stretch of river bend. And then suddenly your perception of the earth is no longer existential and neurotic. It's a world of relationship. When you live in a world of relationship, this thing called a heart gets involved. It warms up. We all warm up, we start to make different decisions about our life, and suddenly reverie leads to participation. And when you participate, and when you put your heart and soul into things, you influence other people, and suddenly you're Robin fucking Hood. Hmm. <laughs> we all want to be. Yeah, this is like, I was like, yeah, that's, that's where we want to go, right? (laughs) I've just walked through, you know, several books in like 10 sentences, but that's basically where I suggest we should head up. (laughs) That was great. Well, I think, uh, you know, a a few of the things that stood out to me were the the notions of spiritual shelter and uh, reverie, reverence, although maybe there's a distinction between the two um, that we could get into. But yeah, I remember reading David Foster Wallace, who was an author in the States. And he had this talk where he said, everybody worships, everybody, every human being worships something, whether they know it or not. And it seems to me, for the most part, that as we have let go of religious worship as a culture, we have attached to unconscious worshiping of things that we 
that we weren't even aware of, right? Ideologies, political um, beliefs, etc. And uh, and so I'm I'm curious if you can expand on. Uh, first off, I mean, do you agree with that, or is there something that you would add to that that concept that we're we're removing from religious worship and or spiritual worship, and and attaching to other forms of maybe materialistic worship. And, and secondly, if you can talk maybe a little bit more in depth on on the spiritual shelter notion that you were uh, sort of pointing towards. Yes, of course. Yeah, I think everything you're saying is is along the right track. We certainly in, in I can't really speak for America, but certainly in Britain, we've been we've been on the run from the deep stuff since the Reformation. We now have religion, but religion is not a it's not a terribly energized word. William Blake always used to say, why does the word devil have so much more energy than the word God? And he was a Christian. Right. And he said, you know, no one with an imagination could, you couldn't not be a Christian. You know, it was inevitable. Uh, how, how else is God going to talk to you? Hmm. But of course, we're weary. We're weary of God and, and gods and religion and power and colonialism and the whole thing. So most of us have tipped the baby out with all conceivable bathwater. But that thing I was saying a minute ago, where, where does your conscience come from? What's talking to you? What if you spoke back to it? What if you started to make the difficult decisions that it was asking from you? I'm not asking you to sign up to, uh, you know, to a particular name at this point, but I guarantee, I guarantee that our spiritual malaise isn't going anywhere with whatever technology is we're provided with, no matter how stupefying it appears, which it is, the, the soul condition is not going to change. You will remain hungry for something the passions cannot provide. Hmm. You will. And a functioning faith or a functioning religion or a functioning engagement, let's call it, the one thing it's going to do to you is give you the requisite distance you need from your impulse system. Mm. You gradually go through a process of tempering into growing yourself to becoming a full human being. All right, team. That concludes the compilation episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope that you enjoyed this. And, uh, if you did, as always, DM me on Instagram. Let me know what you enjoyed about this episode, any potential guests that you would like me to hunt down and have on the show. And please don't forget to share and leave a rating and a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. And there's links in the show notes to all of these episodes. So if you want to go back and listen to the, to the whole episodes, you can just find those very easily in the show notes. Uh, and that's it. So thank you so much. And we'll talk to you next week.